Would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 41? Psalm 41. This concludes Book 1 of the Psalter. And so it concludes the first section of the Psalms. When you refer to the books of the Psalms, you say the Psalms. When you refer to Psalm 41, it's Psalm 41, not Psalms 41. It's a Psalm of David. Likely the backdrop of this Psalm is during the time where he was fleeing from Absalom, his son. And it's amazing that as we look at this psalm, there's a clear picture of Christ and Christ's betrayal by Judas in this. And David foresees this as he recognizes himself as a, a foreshadowing of what Christ would experience. And we see this in verse 9 of Psalm 41, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And you see that that is a clear picture of what happens with Judas and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's proper to say this is a messianic psalm pointing us to Christ. Showing us, but there's something else in here is that this psalm actually introduces a subject of God's providence in a way that uh, helps us to understand God's providence and our human responsibility. And so this evening, we're going to go to the deep end for a moment to go to the shallow end and have some practical help and how the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty is actually a means of comfort, and how it is a means of comfort even as we see it as David states it. So let's, let's hear Psalm 41 in its fullness, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble that the Lord delivers him, The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words. While his heart gathers iniquity, when he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, Who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. 
By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. You'll notice how this begins with a statement of blessed. Spurgeon makes a a very poignant point about this is that there's a pattern or a progression of these blessed statements in the Psalms. Psalm 1 begins with, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And so Spurgeon makes this point of, here's the progression, Blessed is the man who meditates upon God's word, And then the next psalm that begins with this blessed statement is Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose sin, or whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And so you see that of the one who is forgiven is the blessed one. So you put this together, the one on whom delights on God's word progresses to the one whose sin is forgiven, and then in verse or in Psalm 41, we see the fruit of that one. And the fruit of that one is he considers the poor. And specifically, this is the downtrodden. This is the disposition and character of the one uh, who knows the Lord, is they have a care for those that are downtrodden. And why is that? We have to understand our care for the poor flows out of a recognition that we are poor and that we are beggars, that we are in need of mercy, that we are in need of grace. In fact, Psalm 40 ends with this very statement that we are poor. Look what he says. As for me, I am poor and needy. That's the king of Israel. Blessed is the one who considers the poor because he recognizes he is poor. In fact, blessed is the poor in spirit. But this is the fruit of the one that has meditated upon the word of God. This is the fruit of the one whose sin, whose transgression has been forgiven, is that the poor man delivers his own. You think of it this way, is that when the Christian helps the one that is downtrodden, you're just simply helping one that is just like you. And that puts things in context for us. And of this blessed man, it says this, that the Lord protects him, keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land And so David acknowledges that the Lord protects his own, he keeps his own alive, and that they are recognized as blessed, and they have the blessings of God upon them in the land. And so you see this idea that because the one who knows the Lord is blessed, and oh, blessed is the one that does this, he is called this in the land. It's recognized by all. But you notice this interesting little phrase at the end of verse 2. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. Let's just pause there for a second. Because this introduces an interesting thing for us to consider. 
there is a will of man that is functioning according to its own desires. This word will here can be translated as throat, breath, but it's really the idea of life. It is the idea of emotion, passion, and desires. You do not give them up to the passion and desires of his enemies. And so you see two two things at work here. You see, as David is stating this, David is stating there is a desire, there is a will of his enemies that is working to end his life. And certainly that is the statement that they are trying to, their will is for him to die because you see in verse 3, the Lord sustains him on a sickbed and in illness you restore him to full health. Their desire, their will is that David would succumb to death, that David would be overtaken, that David would be, that David would die. But yet God has another will. Man's will and desires are bent on his own glory. This is the unregenerate man. In Christ, our will is changed. Our desires are changed because we're given new heart. We're given a new desire. But those apart from Christ, their desire is their own desire of glory. But what we see here is that God has a will that overrides their will. Their will is in the hand of God. God uses the will of man in the accomplishment of his plan. His plan is not for David to die. His plan is for David to be preserved. But yet these enemies going after David, God does not force that upon them. That's naturally their desires. You think of in Job, how when Job loses his family because a group of raiders come and these Chaldeans come in and raid and strike down the servants and everyone's struck down by these Chaldeans. One thing that's very interesting about that is this is that was according to the will of God in that he allowed this to take place. It was ultimately God's will. But that happens through this group of Chaldeans that desire destruction. R.C. Sproul says this, You have a free will. God has a free will. But God's will always wins. What we see here, and this I think comes out, is this, is something we have to recognize about the will of man and the will of God and God's providence, God's sovereignty. We spoke about that quite a bit this morning. Theologians came up with, and here we're, just stick with me for a moment, I've called this concurrence. God's will running its course, and man's will. You have a will. You, according to your will, came here tonight. 
You usually act according to your greatest desire, do you not? So you have a will. But God has a will, too. Our will does not take God by surprise. God's will is ultimate. We like to talk about our free will. But do we uphold our free will at the expense of God's free will? Only one can have a true free will, right? Joel Beakey says this. He says on this idea of of concurrence. He says he preserves and governs, this is God, preserves and governs the existence, life, and actions of each man. But the man is not a passive object moved by external forces. That's to say that God did not put these desires in the will of David's enemies. God didn't put those desires in there. God just leaves them in their desires to destroy David. Beaky goes on to say he thinks, he chooses, and moves his body of his own human faculties and powers. You are freely doing things and making decisions. Louis Burkhoff, another theologian, says this, each deed is in its entirety both a deed of God and a deed of the creature. It is a deed of God insofar as true, as, as far as there is nothing that is independent of the divine will, and insofar as it is determined from the moment to moment by the will of God. And it is a deed of man insofar as God realizes it through the self-activity of the creature. You see, when you look at this phrase, you do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The will of his enemies was bent on destruction and death, but God had a greater will. The London Confession of Faith says this, and again, stick with me, and I'm going to put, bring this together by God's grace. This is what Baptists believe in 1689, and it's virtually the same thing as the Westminster Confession of Faith, where he says, This, God the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, and disposes and governs all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according unto his infallible knowledge, and the free and mutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of his glory, of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. So God is absolutely in control of all things. But then you and I are acting. This is what the confession says of this. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, so that there is not anything befalls any by chance or without providence. Yet by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily or freely or contingently. In other words, you act according to your will, It's according to your desires, but God uses those according to his plan, and you act according to his plan. You're not a puppet. Now, if you're saying that doesn't make any sense, I know. (laughs) 
But I know what God's word says is that man has a will to do certain things, and if they're in Christ, that will is to do the will of God, and if they're not, their will is to do the will of man. And that will here is to destroy David, but they're unable to do it. Look at how this will of man is stated. You see, and from verse 4 to all the way through verse um, 10, this contrast between God and the enemies of David. So we could say what God's will was and what the will of the enemy was. He says, As for me, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. When David says this, I will sin against you many times. In Psalm 51, specifically in verse 4, he says, Against you only I have sinned. And Psalm 51's context is where he is confronted by the prophet Nathan for um, his adultery with Bathsheba and the murdering of Uriah. And David, when he comes to repentance, says, God, it's, it's against you and you only that I have sinned. And you think about that, you think, well, David sinned against a lot of people in that. But the thing is, is that no one's innocent. That's why David goes on to say, for you will be just in how you judge me. So as he looks at this, Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I've sinned against you. Our sins ultimately, yes, we sin against other people, but our sins are against God. God's the innocent party in it. And so he goes on after he says this, Lord, be gracious to me, because he's a sinner. Look what he, how, he, how he describes the will of his enemies. He says, my enemies say of me in malice, this is verse 5, when will he die and his name perish? So what's their will? Their will is that David would die. He goes on to say, and when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. So this one that comes to him in the idea of friendship is really not. He goes on in verse 7, all who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. Why would they not just say it to his face? Well, he's the king. You don't tend to say things about the king to his face without some dire consequences. They say in verse 8, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, in this context, David is writing about Ahithophel. So let's, let's go to 2 Samuel for a second. And I just want you to see God's providence and the will of man play itself out in this story. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 15, Absalom has entered into Jerusalem. Absalom is David's son. David has fled Jerusalem. Absalom wants to take his father's life. David has counselors. One of them is um, a, a man by the name of Hushai. He also had the counselor Ahithophel, and Ahithophel decides to betray 
David and go with Absalom. He sees maybe that the handwriting's on the wall. David's getting older. Absalom is well-loved, and Absalom will become the new king. And so he, he edges his bets and goes with Absalom. Hushai stays faithful. David sends Hushai to be a, 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 sea, you know, a plant, really, to throw the, off the council of Ahithophel. So Ahithophel was close to David. Ahithophel was his friend. Ahithophel would have shared bread with David. You read this in verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Now, here's the thing. is Absalom's not a dumb guy. He immediately suspects, why is David's counselor and friend here and saying, long live the king? Again, Absalom's not a dumb guy. He recognizes this could be a setup. But look what plays out. Hushai said to him, to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I served your father, so I will serve you. And so Hushai uh, covers his tracks and says, No, Absalom, I'm, I'm here for you to be on your side here. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? And then Ahithophel gives counsel to Absalom. And this is what Ahithophel's counsel was like. Verse 23. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed by both David and Absalom. Ahithophel gives David some advice and Absalom will cover will take that advice. Absalom will then take advice for Ahithophel on how to capture David. But then Hushai gives advice on how to capture David, and they're different. Now you put it all together in the story. Hushai was a loyal friend of David. Absalom knows that. He has the trusted counsel of Ahithophel that's giving different counsel than Hushai's. It would make sense that Absalom, being a smart person, would take the counsel not of, of Ahithophel, but actually, I mean, excuse me, of Hushai, but taking the counsel from that of Ahithophel, Absalom taking the counsel of Ahithophel. But look what happens. Hushai contradicts him and says, this time the counsel is not good. You know this is right. But look look what's going on behind the scenes. This is where it's helpful for us to understand man's will and God's will. Look at verse 14 of 2 Samuel 17. And Absalom... And all the men of Israel said, 
The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. If you're following along, you would think there's no way that Absalom's going to take Hushai's counsel. You can read it and see Ahithophel's counsel's better. So why does Absalom and all of them say, hey, Hushai's better? Look what it tells us. The, The scripture actually tells us. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. The will of Absalom was to go after David, the anointed one of the Lord. The counsel of Ahithophel was according to his will, and Hushai goes and gives this as well. And what we see behind the scenes throughout this whole thing that is taking place, it is all according to God's plan where he is overriding the evil intentions of people for his own purposes. So did Ahithophel have a will? Did Absalom have a will? Were they exercising their will? Yeah, but God's will overruled it, didn't it? Now put this with Christ. Look what's said of Judas. And you know, whenever you read in the Gospels uh, accounts, one thing you always see with Judas's name is it always says Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. You know why it says that? Because when they were writing this, it was still a shock to them. Judas was unexpected as the guy that would do this. But notice what we read of him in, in John 13. And remember what, what we just read in Psalm 41. It says, So that the disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? And by the way, that's probably John who's asking Jesus this. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread that I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. So Judas has a plan to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. He's sitting with Jesus as they're laid out. John is laying, it says, in the bosom of Christ. Judas would have been in a position uh, of advantage over Christ. And Christ was willing to allow this one that wants to kill him to be behind him. But what do we know of Judas? Did God put anything into the will and heart of Judas that wasn't already there? No. But we also have to be careful what Scripture says of Judas, don't we? In John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. 
think the King James says, one of you is the son of perdition. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve who was going to betray him. You also see that this was written according to the Scriptures. That he would betray the Lord Jesus Christ. You see in John chapter 17 in verse 12, while I was with them, this is in Jesus' prayer, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be what? Fulfilled. It was written of him. It was written of him in Psalm 41. The will of the enemy was to crush the son of David, just as Ahithophel's enemy to David was to see David crushed as well. What happens? Judas comes leading a pack. Luke chapter 22, verse 42 said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And Judas hands him over. Let's go back to Psalm 41 for a second. You see of these phrases, My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die? His name perish. And one who comes to see me, he empties utter empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend. This is the picture of being utterly deserted. And, at the, and even then, your closest friend has deserted you. That's a distressing point. You can just imagine being abandoned by everyone, and then you think, my, my close friend, he'll be there with me. And in the deep sorrows, we have friends, and we say, oh, my friend won't desert me, but David says, even my close friend did. Here's where we draw comfort from all of this, though. And I think it's crucial for us to understand this. And it's this, it's the same point we made this morning. Even in the most difficult time, God is working things according to his purposes. Man has a will working itself out, but God will not allow his people to be given over to the will of his enemies. Man is free. God is more free. God's will wins. But there's a greater reminder in this that we have to recognize. And it's this. The Son of God, who took on flesh and experiences the ultimate fulfillment of verse 9, 
is our Savior. You think about it. David experienced betrayal. David was deserted. David's dead and cannot intercede on our behalf. David's gone. But what do we know of Jesus? Look at Hebrews for a second. In chapter 2. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is what? Able to help those who are being tempted. Because Christ was betrayed, because Christ was left deserted, because Christ alone went to the cross, when we experience that, guess what? We have one that knows what we've gone through. We have one that is perfect that we can go to. This is why in chapter 4 of Hebrews it says, Since then we have a great high priest. That is one that stands for us, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. So the Lord Jesus Christ can sympathize with our weaknesses. Let me spell that out. He hears you and he understands what you're going through. Because he himself went through it. So if we've been dealt the blows of life, so is Christ. But he was perfect. And Christ is merciful. And we see the mystery of God's sovereignty working itself out, not only through this life of David, but in Christ. And so it does two things for us. Is it keeps us responsible, because you're responsible for your will. Those that have the will to destroy David, guess what? They'll be held responsible for it. But this also reminds us of something. This is that even the actions of people, when they are bad actions, the, the actions of wicked men are used of God. What takes place here is a foreshadowing of what will take place of Christ. And it was according to God's will and plan. Let me show you why. Acts chapter 2 says this of the betrayal and destruction and the death of Christ. In verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified. That is, 
you're responsible for killing Jesus, but what does it say? It was according to the definite plan of God. So let's go back to that idea of man's will. What was man's will? To deliver Jesus over to his enemies so that he would die. And they did that. But what do we see here? It was according to the definite plan of God. Judas had a desire to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. He was greedy when he realized Jesus wasn't an earthly king that he wanted. He decided, I'm not going to run with this guy anymore. He's going to go to the cross and be crucified, so he betrays him so he can get his, his 30 shekels. That was Judas's will. But what do we see? Jesus said, did I not choose you, the 12, even though one of you is son of the devil? And then Jesus in his prayer says, I've kept all that you have given me except for the son of perdition. Look, when we experience things that are unpleasant, that are horrible, and we try to figure out, okay, I know the Bible says this is working for my good, but how? We see a glimpse of that in the cross, don't we? In fact, that's where we see it. Because it's in the cross that God saves a people to himself. And the cross is the only moment in human history where we would say an innocent man dies. There's only been one innocent man that's died. There's only been one innocent man that's been punished. And that was Jesus. When David says this, he says, Verse 10, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. It's amazing what he says here. After being completely deserted, where's his comfort? It's in the God who uses the wicked will and intentions of man for his own purposes to accomplish his own will. That's where his hope lies. That's where our hope lies as well. While our enemies may turn on us and have, turn, have their delight in us, we have our God. Look at verse 11. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me. Why is that? Why will the enemy not triumph over the Christian? Because of the cross, the final enemy was defeated, and the final enemy is death. So we might face our lumps here. That's nothing compared to the finality of what we have and receive in Christ, that he has defeated the last enemy. And here's who it's for. Look at verse 12. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. You have to, at this moment, say, time out. Integrity? What? What did you say in verse 4? Be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. 
What's he talking about integrity? He's already admitted he's sinful. You look at his previous Psalms where he talks about his sin. He says in Psalm 40, verse 12, where he says, For evils have encompassed me beyond numbers. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. David says he's a sinful man. He recognizes he's a sinful man. He says his sinfulness is so great, it's more than the hairs of his head. And boy, can I relate to Psalm 40, verse 12, as I'm sure we all can. But yet then he has the audacity to say here, but you've upheld me because of my integrity. What are you talking about, David? He's justified by faith alone and not by his works. He has an imputed righteousness of his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is accounted to him as righteousness by faith and not by his works. He can stand in perfect righteousness and integrity. It can be translated blameless there. He is blameless before the Father because of his greater Son that will come. For he who knew no sin became sin. We would no longer be condemned. He can say, because of my integrity, because of his son, that he knows will ultimately be sinned against and betrayed, will walk in perfect integrity. Look at the beauty of it. And set me in your presence forever. David knew that the Lord eternally had his hand upon him. And that according to God's electing love, he would never, ever be cast out. It didn't matter what the will of man was to destroy him. God had said, I am through your lineage going to bring about a redeemer. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. David knew that he would not be wiped out by his enemies because God promised him that. Look at how he closes this. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Only one that is eternal can set me in your presence forever. Let me give you a comforting truth. In Ephesians... We see this realized for us as well. So while we may face turmoil and strife, if you're in Christ, He has set you in His presence forever, the everlasting to everlasting God. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, it shows us why. In Him, that is Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 
That is the presence of God for everlasting to everlasting, eternally to have the seal of the Spirit upon you, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to his praise of his glory. You are in Christ, set in his presence eternally by the seal of the Spirit, that you receive an inheritance that is imperishable, that is kept in heaven for you. If we go back to Psalm 41, I want us to see one other aspect of this, and it's this. You do not give him up, in verse 2, up to the will of his enemies. David was not given up to the will of his enemies, but guess what? His greater son was. It was according to their will to come after the Son, just as we see in Acts chapter 2, but you crucified him. You did this to him, but it was according to the definite plan of God. Jesus was given over to his enemies so that our greatest enemy, death, will not conquer us. And the will of Satan, the will of the enemy, it will not be accomplished. God's will is. And he will not give you over to the hands of your enemy whose desire is to conquer you. Because he's a defeated foe. So Christ was handed over to his enemies so that we would not be. And friends, that's the glorious truth of the gospel, isn't it? And it was all according to God's sovereign plan. Let us wrestle with this. Let us wrestle with God's sovereignty, God's providence, our responsibility, because in it we see the beauty of the gospel unfolding in time. And yes, it's beyond us, but boy, is that a great comfort to us. To know that God is working all things even the wicked will of man according to his purposes and according to his plan that he has given. Our hope lies there. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ.